Welcome to Icons in the Making. I'm your host, Heather Stern, CMO at Lippincott, the creative consultancy behind some of the world's best brands. Join me as I sit down with the leaders of today's most influential brands. You'll hear stories of transformation and walk away with a new perspective on what it means to be an icon. This is Icons in the Making. Today, I'm speaking with Ira Rubenstein, Chief Digital and Marketing Officer at the beloved and iconic PBS. Over the last two decades, Ira has had a front row seat into the gradual and now breakneck speed with which digital has reshaped the media, entertainment, and content landscape. He's spearheaded many firsts in the industry, and over the last few years, he and his team have worked incredibly hard to ensure that PBS, a network with such a vibrant past, maintains its relevance, and continues to provide people of every age and interest with a classroom, a passport, and a stage for the arts. Hi, Ira. Hi. How's it going today? It's going great. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So let's talk about firsts. At Sony, you established MovieLink, which some of our younger listeners may not know about, but of course I do. It was the first time you could buy movie tickets online. At Marvel, you catalyzed 200% revenue growth for this new thing called digital media. At 20th Century Fox, you led groundbreaking cross-media partnerships like the first X-Men and Mafia Wars. And now at PBS, you're leading a digital evolution. Among all of your firsts, which are you most proud of and which one was the most challenging to achieve? Wow, that's a really good question. You know, I think the most challenging and the one I'm most proud of would have to be the launch of the Marvel Digital Comic Book app on the iPad. And I'm proud of that because we had a very small team at Marvel. Disney had just bought us. And I was in a meeting with Bob Iger with the heads of ESPN and ABC. And Bob said, I've seen the iPad. It's going to change everything. We have to be there at launch. And this is like two months, I think, before the thing was going to launch. Mm. And if you remember, because you're closer my age, when he announced it, when Steve Jobs announced it, everyone was going, what the heck? Who wants a tablet? What, why would anyone want this? And what's it for? <laughs> what's it for, right? And so all I knew was the head of Disney's telling me that we got to figure it out. And so working with a company called Comixology that had an app, I quickly negotiated a deal for their back end and then working with my team woman by name is Shauna Baruth, who's extraordinarily talented. We had an iPad locked in a room at Marvel, windowless, chained to a desk, and we did the whole front end all over and recreated the front end in less than, I don't know, a month. And then it went to uh, Apple, and Bob told me this story later, that Steve Jobs looked at all of them and he selected the Marvel Digital Comic Act because he really liked the interface. He thought it was a really good interface for comics and show off the iPad. So that went out on the original iPads to the press as one of the first apps to highlight what the iPad could do. So for me, as a product person, marketing person, it felt validation of you know having Steve Jobs, the god of interface and UX, to select something that you worked on. That's incredible. What was the response? That it took off. This whole new 
industry took off of digital comic books. And it was really for a lot of people who wouldn't go to a comic book store to buy books, but still like them. And so they could buy these books. And then, in fact, the popularity of the digital raised the physical book sales. Mm. So it actually lifted both businesses. That's amazing. So I'm glad you brought up Marvel. I wanted to go back a little bit. So it's April 2008. You just started at Marvel. The next month, the first Iron Man premiered. And then later that year, the financial world collapsed. What was that time like? And what's an experience from that period that changed how you see the world? Oh, gosh. You know, I came to Marvel and it was really to help them launch digital in a, I'd say, a substantial way. When I got there, Marvel.com wasn't being printed on the comic books. And the website was kind of a mess. There was broken links, missing images. So it really was a complete transformation of rebuilding everything. And it was a lot of fun. It's again, you're dealing with iconic brands, you're dealing with fans, passionate. Comic cons were always wild. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was at the center of a hurricane. But in a good way, maybe. (laughs) In a good way. (laughs) But it was just a lot of fun. In a way, entertainment became this refuge. You know, lots of people were kind of rebuilding their lives and there was a lot of uncertainty. And of course, everything comes in waves. And over the course of PBS's history, I'm sure we can talk about other moments, but what impact did the financial crisis at that time have on what you were doing? Well, it's interesting, you know, in entertainment during periods of recession or financial crisis, people seek entertainment. And this goes all the way back to the Great Depression. And so the impact is probably not as big as if, say, I was in real estate or, Mm -hmm. you know, Wall Street. Having moved to New York for the job, it was interesting to be in that city in that time. But you could feel it in the city that people were struggling. And, you know, of course, that affects you as a human being. Yeah. So I want to move on to a topic that's near and dear to our hearts at Lippincott, because we got to partner with you on this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to evolve the PBS brand expression and how it shows up in the world. At the time, you referred to PBS as a flip phone brand in an iPhone world. Talk about the impetus for the rebrand and why you've said it was one of the most nerve-wracking things you've ever done. In all honesty, after the comic book app, I would say this brand refresh is probably high up there on one of the most things I'm most proud of in my career. I was looking at how our brand resonated out there. And one of the things I first noticed when I got to PBS and I was being introduced to different general managers from our local stations was how few of them had PBS on their business card. And it just struck me as odd is here you're dealing with this icon and you know it and I know it and everyone you talk to, they know it. And here's one of your member stations and they're not featuring it because they couldn't. They had no tools. So that kind of struck me. And then what's happening in digital, especially in media, is 
your content is going everywhere onto all these different platforms, but your brand's not always traveling with it. And so in order to have the brand travel with it, you got to have a strong brand package and know who you are and how it's going to live on all these different platforms. So in our case, it was how is it going to live on all these different platforms and how is it going to live with our stations who are their own brands in their communities, some going back 60 years, Mm. even prior to the formation of PBS, which is slightly older than 50 years. So that was the challenge. And I knew I had to do something. There, nothing had been done with the brand package for over a decade. And, you know, here we are and all these platforms, and it was just showing up everywhere. And so, you know, I started thinking about that. And I love telling this story because it's true. I was reading some article I can't remember where, about Lippincott and about what you had done for Starbucks and Delta and Southwest Airlines and talking about iconic brands and how you had done a refresh that embraced the true core of the brand without losing what it was. And so I said, I got to meet these people. And so yeah, I we, cold call. <laughs> yeah, cold we always talk you. about the, the true and the new authenticity and who you are at your core and carrying that forward in a way that feels vibrant and modern and dynamic and digital first. I love that story. And not just because I help market the Lippincott brand, but so you cold called us. That never happens. I'm the one always cold calling our clients. Yeah, no, I cold called you and it's been a fantastic partnership since. I remember the brand review and we call it the wall of horror. <laughs> we had a, we had a big conference room at PBS and we had these, Oh, they must be six or eight foot tall boards and about six of them. And we laid out all the different ways the PBS brand was being used and abused in the system in PBS our building itself. Wow. And there was just no, real brand ownership or guidance at all happening. And so we had to really build those kind of muscles in the building and build that for the system that no, we have guidelines and we have an architecture and, you know, we stick to it. Yeah, it's pretty illuminating when you see something like that. And and we experience that a lot with our clients because the brand just lives and breathes on its own in so many different places. And people are creators today and everything has, you know, its own brand and is used in different ways. And I think figuring out how you balance the consistency that the best brands have, but with a little bit of flexibility, right, across these channels. We'll often talk to clients who say that it's, difficult to sell in the benefit that is going to come from investing in a rebrand because it's not just the rebrand, it's then implementing it across everything. Was that a hard sell for you and any advice you would give to those that are in that position and trying to make the case for change? Wow. I would say I'm pretty fortunate that I work for Paula Kerger, who's the CEO of PBS. Paula is, I think, one of the the best, she truly empowers her team. 
And the selling through was really about working with an outside foundation to help us raise funds to cover the cost. But in explaining, you know, the challenges of us trying to move to this digital world, we needed a brand package to work. It just made sense. It made natural sense. I think the harder part, honestly, has been the selling through to our stations and the value of adopting the PBS brand as part of their brand. We're able to show the stations the benefit. And right now, we are sitting at over 80% of the system has adopted the brand package and working with the name, and it's still growing. The original goal, which I would say the people who have been in the system, PBS system for a while, thought was aggressive was 50%. Mm. So it just really showed the job that everyone did in making something that could work for all of our different licensees. And maybe I should take a moment to explain this to people because I don't think people understand when they think of PBS, what's going on. They think of their local station, which is great. Local stations, depending on your market, have lots of different makeups. Some are joint licensees with NPR. We are not the same. NPR is a separate organization. Some are owned by their local university. Some are owned by their state. Georgia Public Broadcasting is an example. Some are just independent nonprofit entities like WNET in in New York. And so you have to have a brand package that could work across all these kind of entities. I probably believe that we are probably the hardest project Lippincott ever took on. (laughs) Well, that's quite an accolade, right? Because we've done some really complex and solved some gnarly problems. But I hear you because at the root of it is that level of influence and understanding of what it's going to take for those affiliates and partners and stations to see the value in it. And hopefully the work spoke for itself. What surprised you most about working with Lippincott? There was a passion there and also a care at Lippincott. And they felt the same fear I felt that they didn't also want to be known as the company that destroyed the (laughs) cultural icon of America that everyone, everyone feels and as proper as they should, that they're local station, that they're a member and it's part of them. And everyone reflects back to their childhood and watching whether it's Sesame Street or Zoom or Mr. Rogers, and there's a nostalgia tied to that. So I don't think there was anything that surprised me. I think what I really appreciated was how much care Lippincott put into it that how much time Connie and the team put into it. They came to our annual meeting. They met the stations. They presented with stations. They presented to our board. It was just ongoing. And so it was just exciting. And I think the work speaks for itself. One of the things I remember coming out of some of the research was this idea that PBS is such a formative 
force for young kids, as we know, and then as well, kind of an older demographic, but that in the middle, there was a little bit of kind of this like space and opportunity to continue to capture that kind of attention that, you know, you were seeing at the both ends of the spectrum. How do you feel like the work helped close that gap? And what are you continue to do to kind of ensure that relevance across the age spectrum? Well, I think it's a combination of making sure we have content that meets that 20, 30, 40-year-old demographic. But then, especially today, it's about being on the platforms where they're at. So, you know, the work, Lippincott's been helping us with PBS Digital Studios, which is our work on YouTube, where we have 30 million subscribers and lots of shows. And it's really at the heart of it is what you would expect public media to be like on YouTube, fitting that format and the length of content that you would expect there. So it's really then about our apps, being on places like YouTube, getting onto places like Pluto or Tubi and these fast channels. And in those cases, it's taking the brand package bringing local station identification if possible, but if not having that strong PBS brand and then the stations who have rebranded can surf off of that because the PBS brand is with their brand. The really important point about the brand refresh was to tie stations to PBS much stronger. And the reason is a business model for public media. In the digital world, we're distributing content on a centralized platform and not on their broadcast signal. How does the viewer connect their local station to the PBS content if it's not local content? Mm-hmm. And so that's what this whole brand refresh had to tie together. I've read that American Family was like the precursor to the Kardashians in the real world. And the French chef came before the Food Network and this old house before HGTV. And what are the conversations that you and your team are having about what's required to keep up and to stay ahead and to continue to blaze new paths, especially now where it's just this explosion of content from everywhere? Yeah, we are definitely living in peak production. And my friends who work in production are all very, very busy. You know, for us, we have to continue to be the place for diverse voices. We have to continue to be the place that takes risks and has content that might not find a home elsewhere. I think we do that. I think we could do a better job. But we continue to push ahead. I'm proud of all of our news and public affairs content, especially in today's world where opinion news is count as news. And I'm not going to give a judgment of whether it is or isn't. But when you look at the PBS NewsHour, when you look at Frontline, when you look at Washington Week, 
and even firing line, we have editorial standards at PBS. In today's world, it's so important to have a balanced news source that is presenting both sides of a story, presenting the facts, and letting viewers decide. Trust and transparency. That's such a huge issue. And I've read PBS as consecutively number one among sources that people trust. And you can't manufacture that. That's something that's built over time. And that's pretty incredible. And it's really important to our brand. But it also goes to our stations who I have to you know, credit the most for helping to maintain that trust. Because you have to remember, we have stations in every market in America. And so PBS and the content from that local station has to work no matter where you are on the political spectrum. And I think it does because we don't take a side. It's a really interesting area that we've continued to explore. The idea of brands not being able to sit on the sidelines or have a perspective. Do you get pressure to speak out, take a side, take a stand? And how do you navigate that? I think we do get pressure, I think, as everyone does, and whether it's from inside your building or from viewers. And I think what we do is we rely on the programming. And we let our work do our speaking for us. And we don't have to come out and say this or that. We say, look at the work. Look at the stories we're sharing. Look at the stories we're telling. And actions always speak louder than words. Amen. So shifting a little bit to talent, what advice do you have for others who are leading teams of people with diverse backgrounds, especially now that working norms and cultural expectations are changing? This to me is the thing that I think has become among the hardest. It's like the work, but behind the work is the talent and the team and keeping them motivated and inspired. So any advice, any learning, especially over the last year and a half? Wow. It's hard right now. I think it's hard for everyone at this moment in time. Setting aside the pandemic, I've always felt that my success is due to the success of the people who work on my team. And I've named a few of them here today because I always feel I'm very fortunate to work with some very, very talented people. And I always feel like my job is to help enable them to be able to do their job. So, you know, my advice to anyone is make sure you're very clear what your vision is, and what people need to be focused on. I'm also a big believer in trying to make decisions quickly. Yes or no, make a decision, because making no decision is always the wrong decision. And I try to share that vision out to my whole group as often as I can. Throughout your career, negotiated some pretty amazing partnerships, Apple, Hulu, Netflix, on and on. Is there a dream partnership that you have today? And and if so, what might that be? Well, look, what I would say is this. We have a very good partnership with YouTube right now. And YouTube TV 
was the first to support us in our live streaming efforts. So that was when we were able to bring live linear streaming of local PBS stations to what they call virtual MPDs. And so that was important. Actually, that was something I wanted to do on day one, seven years ago for PBS. So YouTube TV, when I walked in and spoke to them, and Kelly Merriman is someone I worked with at Sony Pictures. She recently just left, but also a huge supporter of public media. And I said to Kelly, I go, we want to get on YouTube TV. This was before they launched. But here's the challenge. There isn't just one PBS station in a market. There could be three. And that's not how any other broadcaster works. So if you're in the Washington, D.C. area, you have Howard University, you have WIDA, Washington, and you have Maryland Public Television, MPT. And so we had to have YouTube TV do work to make it enable to have three stations in their market, which two might have the same show on at the same time. So it was complicated, but I give all the credit to YouTube, Susan Wojewski. They care about public media and it's an important partnership with them. We do a lot with YouTube as well. I hope we could do even more with them because I do believe in talking about reaching that missing middle, they could play a key part in that. There's some, I have a wish list of things that they know I would like for them to do. If they hear this, they'll be laughing right now because every time <laughs> I see them, I say it. But that's an important partnership. And I also give credit to AWS who have helped us on the back end and really on our infrastructure and delivering these streams efficient as possible because we are public media. As you said, there's such passion for the PBS brand, for local media, public media. What do you say to the naysayers who say, oh, old school and not going to be needed, there's not going to be a place for it in the world going forward? What do you say to them? Oh, I think they're wrong, completely yeah. wrong. I'll tell you why. I truly believe that our local stations will be the last local owned and managed media stations in America. And I say that because I look at the network TVs and your local ABC affiliate or NBC. I don't understand that business model going forward. In a world where you have Disney Plus or Hulu or Peacock or Paramount, why does there need to be that CBS station? And I think they're in trouble. Because in our world, our local stations, as I said at the beginning, matter. They mean something to the community. And because we are locally supported by our viewers, the business model can sustain. Where an affiliate is trying to compete with advertising dollars and the advertising, because I also do our media, no one's buying shows. You buy demographic psychographics. That's why this brand refresh was so important because the strength of the PBS national brand can help the local stations carry through. And that trust that comes with the brand and all the other value that comes with it is just so important. 
Well, Ira, it was so great to spend some time with you. You're a rock star and we'll be looking forward to see what's next. Thank you so much. Well, that's very nice of you to say thank you. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, share with your colleagues and friends and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling really generous, leave us a five-star rating. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.